Amen. That seems to be the message that we need to hear on days like today when we hear hard news. That seems to be the message that the book we've been studying over the last 11 weeks wants us to know that there's trials in life and there will be yet many more. We've come this far by faith. Not by our own works, not by our own actions. We've come this far by faith, and we will continue to press on if the Lord wills, only by faith in the Lord. James is is meeting us over the last 11 weeks where we are. And he's helping us to process life in a hard world, a a world that, that pushes against us, a world that's full of tragedy, a world that that fills our heads with unhelpful thoughts, a world that pushes back at our practices. And James is saying, trials may be many, but you keep going. You keep pressing forward. You keep living life as if the Lord has done something spectacular in it, because he has. And you keep trusting him by faith. This morning, we come to the end of our study in the book of James. We've been here for 11 weeks now. It's been a fitting book. Seems the Lord kind of uses that, doesn't it? Every single book we're in seems to be tailor-made for where we are in this season, right? It's almost as if the word on these pages is actually spirit-inspired. It's actually as if the, the words that we read in this book are actually living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, dividing down into the, the, the bone and the marrow. It's actually as if these words are meant to give us hope and to give us help and to give us life. It's actually as if God wrote this book to help us, because he did. And so we look to his word again this morning for help, for hope, for encouragement, for instruction, for edification, for salvation, and for all the rest. And so if you have your Bibles, return with me to James chapter 5. This morning, we'll look at verses 12 through 20 as we close out our study in the book of James. If you're using one of the Bibles... Under the chairs, you can find it on page 1013, James chapter 5, starting at verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death 
and will cover a multitude of sins. One of the reasons I appreciate books like James is that it puts things on the bottom shelf for us. I mean, there are some books that you read it and you scratch your head like, I don't know what the author is trying to say. James is not one of those books, right? James doesn't leave you beating your head trying to figure out what he's talking about or what point he's trying to get across. It's often as plain as day. We see that even in our passage this morning. What's one of the main things James is wanting his people to do? Well, it's to pray. If you doubt that, just notice how often the word appears here. Seven times in these nine verses, James mentions prayer. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Verse 14, let people call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them. Verse 15, the prayer of faith will save. Verse 16, pray for one another. Again, towards the end of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Verse 17, Elijah prayed fervently. Verse 18, then he prayed again. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to recognize that James's main emphasis in this passage has to deal with prayer. And so because that's one of the main emphasis in the text, that will be one of the main emphases in the sermon. Friends, if you're not a member here, if you're looking for a church or go to any other church, make sure that when the preacher preaches, he's actually saying what the text says. Right? It'll be weird if you see all these emphasis on prayer that James says, and then you say, today we're going to talk about money. Well, you can get there, maybe, <laughs> but it certainly isn't the main emphasis of the text, right? Right, we mean to be a church, right, that promotes looking carefully at the text and simply saying what the text says, okay? This, if the main emphasis of the text is on prayer, so one of the main emphasis of the sermon will be on prayer. Here's what I think is the main idea of James chapter 5, verses 12 through 20, so the main idea of the sermon this morning. To persevere through trials, James has been talking about throughout the whole book. To persevere through trials, Christians must persistently pray for and purposely pursue one another. To persevere through trials, Christians must persistently pray for and purposely pursue one another. And two parts of that main idea will serve as a kind of two points to the sermon this morning. So number one, Christians must persistently pray. We see that in verses 12 through 18. And number two, Christians must purposely pursue. We see that in verses 19 through 20. So number one, Christians must persistently pray. And that'll be the longest point of the sermon, just to kind of give you a heads up. Right? The second point will be very short compared to the, the, the first point. And then number two, Christians must purposely pursue. Point number one, Christians must persistently pray. But before making that point, James tells these believers what they must not do. In verse 12, we see this kind of strange and seemingly out-of-place verse, where James says, above all, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. That above all there doesn't mean that this is the most important command in the entire letter. It's more of an idiom, a stylized way of indicating that James is bringing this letter to a close. Another way of saying it might be, uh, last of all, 
Or, or in closing, you notice James goes on to give 10 more verses, much like preachers do when they say, last of all, and they got 15 more minutes of, of preaching to go. Well, James you know, kind of says above all and, and goes on to, to state a way we shouldn't be living, a way we should not be using our words. James says, don't be swearing. Don't go around making rash oaths to legitimize what you say. It's similar to what James's older brother Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 34 through 37. You, you shouldn't have to make oaths for someone to believe you. Rather, your words should always be truthful. Your yes should mean yes, and your no should mean no. Well, James has just talked about in the previous section that we were in last week, patiently enduring suffering. And perhaps as people endured hardships, they made rash oaths to God if he'd spare them. Lord, if you rescue me from this situation, I swear I'll do this or that. Be careful, God. We'll hold you to those oaths. Look at the story of Jephthah in the Old Testament. Or, or perhaps they made these oaths to those that we read about last week who were oppressing them, saying anything to ease the situation. You know, pressures and persecutions often lead to empty promises, don't they? But James says that's not the way you should use your words. No, don't make hasty vows. Instead, what should mark your speech as you endure any situation in these last days? Prayer. Persistent prayer. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. James calls individuals experiencing hardships to express themselves to God, to call out to him. It's what God himself commands us to do. Psalm chapter 50, verse 15, God says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. Troubles and trials train us to pray. Got suffering? <laughs> Go to God. And friends, understand that suffering has a broad range. Suffering physical. We'll see that as, as James refers to those physically sick in verse 14. But people also can be suffering financially. We saw that with the poor and oppressed last week, people who were being defrauded. People can be suffering emotionally, perhaps with loneliness or feeling abandoned or unloved. People can suffer mentally with anxiety or depression or other unwanted thoughts. People can suffer from verbal abuse or verbal attacks. In 1 Peter, for instance, the Apostle Peter lists being slandered and reviled as forms of experiencing suffering. We can suffer in many ways. And what's the response? It's not to just think happy thoughts. It's not to drown out suffering with other things, with food or alcohol or drugs or sex or entertainment to try to numb the sting of suffering. But rather, it's to pray. If anyone among you is suffering in any way, let him pray. That the situation calling for prayer is suffering lets us know that God cares about our suffering that he is sympathetic to us and wants us to bring all our suffering and sorrows to him. 
God sends afflictions to send us to God. God sends afflictions to send us to God. You can trust him with the hard things in your life. You can trust him with the good things in life and praise him for it. James goes on to say, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. (laughs) Notice James' recognition of reality. Among the members of a local church, there will be some Christians who are suffering, who are going through hard seasons in life, and some who are doing quite well, who are prospering and thriving and cheerful. In the church, you will have both the dreary and the joyful. I wonder, do you think in those dynamics when you think about the diversity of the church? When you think about diversity, don't just think about ethnic diversity. Think about experiential diversity. People who have diverse experiences of life. Some are suffering and some are cheerful. Let's think about that even as we approach the Christmas season this year. For some, this is a joyful time, a joyful season with friends and family and gifts and food. It's laughter, it's fullness of life. For others, this is an extremely hard season. That's barren, that's lonely, that is no gifts, but only painful memories of what's lost or what has never happened or never been. Understand the, the diverse experiences. And friends, understand that it's okay to be in either of those places suffering or cheerful. You don't have to apologize for where you are or how you're feeling. You don't have to act like something you're not. James doesn't say let the suffering act like they're cheerful or let the cheerful act like they're suffering. No, in whatever assignment the Lord has given you for the moment, be genuine in it and express yourself. But notice the common expression. It's prayer. That wording of singing praise here is literally, let him sing psalms. And what were the psalms but prayers to God? For people experiencing different things then, James calls for the same response, prayer. And I think it just shows us the diversity of our prayers. In suffering, you might pray prayers of lament such as what you find in many of David's How Long, O Lord, prayers. In Psalms, like Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? In cheerfulness, you might pray prayers of praise like you find in Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked upon the helpless estate of his servants. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Life's circumstances should not change our actions. We should pray at all times when we're suffering or when we're cheerful, but the kind of prayers might change. Maybe prayers of lament or prayers of praise. And saints, that's okay. The Bible gives us warrants and words for both. 
James moves from individual prayer in verse 13 to intercessory prayer in verses 14 through 16, inviting others to pray for you. He says in verses 14 and 15, is, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James, again, acknowledges real situations in the church. Christians get sick. Saints, it's okay to claim what you actually are. You don't need to refuse to accept that you're feeling bad. You don't need to refuse to accept the test results from the doctor. You're not bringing about sickness by speaking it into existence. Some churches teach that. The Bible does not. The scriptures say that Christians get sick. See Paul. See Timothy. It's part of living in a fallen world. We do not have perfect glorified bodies yet. Yes, by Christ's wounds, we have been healed. But that's from the spiritual sickness of sin that rots our souls, not from every form of physical sickness. We will continue to experience sickness in varying degrees, from common colds to COVID to cancer. But striking here is what the sick are called to do, a call for the elders of the church to come and pray over them. Now, we don't need to over-spiritualize this and, and take from this passage that we shouldn't call on the doctors when we're sick. Friends, doctors are a gift from God and endowed with knowledge and skill from him to do the work he's assigned them to do. They have an expertise that you don't have and that you should generally listen to. The Bible is not anti-physicians and medical treatment. But this verse helps us to see that the Bible points us not to rest our ultimate hopes on any physician or pharmacy prescription, on any man or anything for that matter, but to place your hopes ultimately only on the Lord. God is the author of healing. And so call on the elders of the church to pray to God over you and to anoint you with oil. Did you notice here the, the, the rather quick, matter-of-fact mention of church structure? Almost as, as if it's a given. There are elders, plural, in the singular local church. And that's how the scriptures lay out the polity or structure of leadership in the local church. N not just one senior pastor and dozens of deacons or hundreds of trustees but a plurality of faithful, godly elders shepherding one local congregation. Amen. That's why it's not just me pastoring this church, but both Warner and I shepherding this flock together. Amen. Pray the Lord to raise up other men to serve as faithful pastors, Amen. faithful elders, faithful bishops, faithful shepherds. Those are all the same word, the same office, right? Pray the Lord would do that work here, that he would raise up more men to shepherd this local congregation. Amen. And notice here what part of the pastor's job is. 
to pray for the members of the church. Saints, it is our duty and our privilege to pray for you by name, by circumstance, by whatever issue was going on in your life. We do that and we take joy in doing that. But notice also that you have a job to do to let us know how to pray for you, to let us know what's going on in your lives. Notice James here charges the sick person to be the one who takes the initiative to call for the elders of the church to come and pray for them. Friends, as church members, let me encourage you to develop the instincts to when something is going on in your life, when something is going on in your home, when something is going on in your body, to call for the elders of the church and let us know about it. We might might not be able to fix the situation, but we can pray for you. I'm grateful for the many ways many of you already do that. A number of you volley information without us having to kind of pluck it out of you. You volley information for how we can pray for and care for you. I mean, some of you set up regular meetings not to, to talk about all the things that are going wrong, but simply to let us know what's going on in your life. Keep doing that. We want to be involved in your life. And let me try to alleviate any kind of internal reservations that that might be keeping you from doing that. That might be keeping you from reaching out to your pastor so that we might care for you. We are not too busy for you. We are busy. We are not too busy for you. Reach out to your pastors, to your elders. Me and Warner have tried to thoughtfully think about how we can care for this entire congregation between the two of us for the time being. And so that might mean that Warner reaches out to some folks and I reach out to other folks, right? Don't feel neglected if you don't hear from both of us for everything, but we do want to be involved in every member's life. And friends, let me just give you an encouragement. If, if you're not a member of a church, or just kind of a frequent visitor, even of this church, you need and you actually want as a Christian the shepherding care of a pastor who's over you, right? We're not called to pastor all of Temple Hills or every Christian that walks through our doors. We're called to pastor the flock here. And so let me encourage you to to join some flock, to be under someone's watch and guidance so that your soul might be cared for and so that you might have godly people praying for you. The sick person in this passage probably doesn't have the sniffles. They're probably people we'd consider on the sick and shut-in list. They can't make it out to the church gathering, so they call the elders to come to them. I mean, even notice the, the wording in verse 15 of the Lord raising them up. It might very well indicate that they are bed-bound, that they are bound to their beds and unable to get up themselves. In any case, the elders pray for the Lord to heal and anoint them with oil. Now, some people make a big deal of the oil here. This oil did not have any magical powers. This oil probably didn't have any medicinal powers either. I mean, these are pastors, not physicians. The main point is the praying, not the oiling. So don't read this text and get all like, what is oil? Like, no, the praying is the main part, okay? What use was the oil then if it had no special power? Well, it was probably symbolic. In the Old Testament, oil was often used 
to anoint someone and, and, and consecrate them for service, to, to kind of set them apart. Where here, it, it, well, here it probably served the same purpose of, of consecrating someone to the Lord, especially setting them apart for the Lord's healing. Lord, Lord, this person is in a, in a special way needing your special help. So, Lord, let, let me anoint them with oil to set them apart for your help, for your healing, and trusting that God can heal them, trusting that God can actually perform the miracle in their bodies that they themselves and no other physician can do. James says in verse 16, the, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, here again is where some people get caught all up, advocating that there's a special, unique, super spiritual prayer of faith that always guarantees healing. I mean, and that seems to be what the text is saying at the surface level. Friends, this is why it's so important to read the Bible in context. Now, what does that mean? First, it means reading a particular passage in context of the other verses immediately surrounding it. Then it means reading that passage in the context of the book overall. Then reading that passage in the context of the entire Bible. That's how you understand Scripture. Right? You don't just take one verse and say, it must mean this. No, how's the author been using it already? How's he used it in that passage, in the entire chapter, in the entire book? How's the entire Bible talk about this thing? Here, if you zoom out a bit, you see that what James means here is not a unique prayer of faith, but rather prayer that is offered in faith. Prayer that is born from completely trusting in God. To see that, we just need to read other passages in this book about prayer. In James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, you might remember James advocates that those who lack wisdom should pray for it. They should ask for wisdom, James says. But he follows that up in chapter 1, verse 6 and says, but let him ask in faith <laughs> with no doubting. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. The, the doubting man is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Yes. Or in James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, James tells these believers that they do not have because they do not ask, because they do not pray. He goes on and says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You don't pray because you don't have faith that God will provide. And when you do happen to pray, it's out of the wrong motives and with the wrong intentions. It's not from faith. James has been attacking a kind of faithless praying. So that here in verse 15 of our passage, what he does is show a model of faith-filled praying. Amen. I mean, the elders of the church should be exemplary models of faith and of faith-filled praying. And James shows the impact of faith-filled praying, praying that depends and ultimately and conclusively trust in God. The prayer born out of deep faith in God, a praying without doubting, is met with amazing results. God heals the sick. And this is not just James, right? You can say, oh, James tripping. He, he, he introduced some new stuff. No, James, as he does so often, is repeating his brother and his Lord Jesus. 
In Matthew chapter 21, verses 21 through 22, Jesus says, if you have faith and do not doubt, you can say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, does this guarantee that every faithful prayer for healing will result in healing? Well, yes. If that's God's will. But God could will something different for the sickness to last or for it to lead to death. I mean, for the believer, death is actually deliverance. But if God wills to heal, the amazing thing, think about this, if God, his purpose, if his actually will is to heal somebody from cancer or from AIDS or from COVID or from any other kind of debilitating thing, if God wills to heal, the amazing thing is that he has chosen to accomplish that will in connection with our prayers. I mean, just as if God wills to save someone spiritually, if God wills to cause a sinner dead in their sin to come to new life in Christ, he has chosen to accomplish that will in connection to our faithfully proclaiming the gospel. What his will is ultimately in every situation, we don't know. That's not our business. What our business is, is to be faithfully praying and faithfully proclaiming. Notice the last part of verse 15. If the person has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It shows us that sometimes, not always, don't be wrong, but sometimes sickness is directly caused by sin. All the time, indirectly, sickness is a result of sin. If sin never entered into the world, there'd be no sickness, no death. But sometimes, directly, there's a clear line from your sickness to some specific sin that is the cause for it. All right, sometimes sin is the direct cause of sickness. God's hand of affliction, of discipline, might be through our physical affliction. I mean, we, we, we note that every time we take the Lord's Supper, don't we? Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about some being sick because they partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Right? The, the, the sin of, of, of being greedy and of disregarding brothers and sisters in partaking of the Lord's Supper leads to the sickness of whatever was going on with their bodies. We should examine ourselves to see if there's some unrepentant sin that the Lord is displeased with if we're plagued with the disease. It's not always the case. Don't hear me wrong, but this sometimes might be the case. And if it is true, then we should repent. Repent. Elders are right sometimes to pry a little bit, to poke under the hood and to ask underlying questions. And if what comes to the surface is sin, then not only is the desired outcome physical healing, but more importantly, spiritual restoration. If the person has committed sins, James says, he will be forgiven. Saints, don't let that wash over you. The deepest problem we have is not physical, but spiritual. Sin is dark and deep. It separates us from God, our creator. Sin angers God. 
Sin will lead us to hell. Sin keeps us, it robs us from fulfilling the purpose for which we were created to glorify God with all our bodies and all our lives. But the amazing thing is, even with how deeply we have sinned and offended God, if we confess our sins, God will forgive us. Amen. And it's not because he will just forget our sin, but because he judges our sin in his son. Jesus Christ came to die for our sins and rise from the grave so that we might be saved. So that every single one of our sins might be forgiven. Fully. When we turn from sin and trust in Christ, all our sins are forgiven. We must keep turning to him. Whenever we sin, continually confessing our faults and falling upon his grace, falling upon his life, his death, his resurrection to bring us back into the right relationship with God that we need. But you know, this confession and intercessory prayer isn't an elder to member phenomenon. James says the whole church should be involved. Notice in verse 16, he goes on to command, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James has talked about confession and physical healing that prayer brings. But you know, confession and prayer can also heal broken relationships. Amen. Uh, that seems to be the kind of healing that James includes along with physical healing here in verse 16. I mean, remember back in chapter 4, James noted the conflicts, the quarrels, the fights that were happening among church members. And he said they resulted from internal passions warring in people's hearts. People coveted things in their hearts. Their desires became idols. They idolized power and respect and status and privilege. And when they did not get those things, it led to fights and divisions. Well, well James says, if confession of sin and prayer by the elders can heal your body, if that can restore your relationship to the Lord, what impact might it have on restoring your relationship with one another? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you all may be healed. Conflict among church members can kill a church. Or conflict among church members can be healed through confession. By you as a member, going to another member and not pointing out what they did to, to lead you to, to, to think or do or say whatever you did. But rather confessing sin in your own heart that led to your sinful actions and contributed to the conflict. And then the other person receiving that confession and not responding but saying, you're right, you were wrong. But rather when sin is confessed, praying for the other person, pointing them to Jesus, the one who saved us from our sins and to the hope and forgiveness and renewal found in him alone. Friends, many of us might think of confession only as a curse. It's the last thing we want to do. It seems dreadful and embarrassing and, and like it'll only make things worse. But this passage teaches us to think of confession as a cure. 
Confession is not a curse. Confession, James says, is a cure. You, you know, sin loves to live in secret. Getting it out in the open allows for genuine killing of sin and healing of relationships. Saints, some of us are stuck in sin because we keep on hiding it. And if we're hiding sin, can't nobody help us? Because can't nobody pray for us? Because don't nobody know what's going on with us? That porn addiction, that alcohol or drug abuse, that overly critical spirit that is analyzing and critiquing every single thing that you see or hear from other people, that deceitful spirit, that lying tongue, it can't be cured if you try to keep it inside. Some of us are in stunted relationships because we are not confessing sins to people we've covenanted to do life with, whether that's church members or spouses. Trust and genuineness and empathy and gentleness and grace. You know, the things we all truly value in a relationship. All those things are hindered when you do not confess sins. A lack of confession keeps you from being the kind of Christian you're supposed to be. Open, honest, repentant. And lack of confession keeps others from being the kind of Christians they're supposed to be. Gracious, patient, prayerful. It's often said, but it does not make it untrue. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes people. Prayer changes situations. It brings spiritual and physical and relational healing. I mean, we've seen that as a church. We've seen people pass from death to spiritual life as we've prayed for them. We've seen people's prognosis of initial cancer threats turn out to be nothing at all as we've prayed for them. We've seen conflicts resolved and brothers and sisters dwell together in unity as we've prayed for them. And why not? I mean, James tells us at the end of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. <laughs> when we believe that and when we resolve to keep praying, there is more power in prayer than in the voting booth. There is more power in prayer than in a passionate post online. Prayer is the best form of protest, the best form of proactive speech, the best way to promote peace and justice, the best way to pull down strongholds, the best way to push people together. Prayer is powerful. If you need an example of that, look to Elijah, James says in verses 18 and 19. Pointing back to the story we find in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. Elijah prayed that it might not rain. And the man's prayers produced a drought for three and a half years. Then he prayed again. And an oasis of rain dropped from heaven and brought about all kinds of fruit on the earth. Well, Elijah was a prophet. 
Maybe that's how you respond. He has some secret sauce in his brain. Yes, he was a prophet, but that was only his role. More fundamentally, James says at the beginning of verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. He was just like us. He used the bathroom like us. He put on his clothes just like us. He put on his socks and shoes just like us. Maybe not. He didn't probably wear some sandals, probably didn't need socks. Right. He had the same nature as we did. There was nothing supernatural about Elijah. He was a man, warts and all, just like us. A sinful man, warts and all, just like us. But he was a man who prayed to a powerful God and trusted him to do powerful things. And God did powerful things. Friends, do you trust that God is still powerful and still does powerful things through the prayers of the righteous? Elijah, though a prophet, was no more righteous than you and me. His righteousness was founded as he looked forward to the coming Savior. And our righteousness is founded on that Savior who came, Jesus Christ the Lord. He has died and given us access to God as our Heavenly Father and calls us to call out to him often. At all times, in all circumstances, whether happy or hurting, whether sick or struggling with sin, whether individually or corporately, as we endure trials of various kinds here in these last days, Christians must persistently pray. Secondly, and lastly, and far more briefly, Christians must purposely pursue. Christians must purposely pursue one another. Look at verses 19 and 20. James closes saying, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Notice one more time James's sense of reality. This man does not picture the church as a perfect people as a community without any problems in life. We've already seen in verse 13, he notes that some among the body of believers will be suffering. And in verse 14, that some among the saints will be sick. Now in verse 19, James notes that there will be some among the church who will be straying, who will be wandering from the truth. Family, the danger of people deconstructing their faith of people on the verge of departing the faith is, a not, is not a new thing. It is a constant threat. But I wonder, what picture pops in your head when you think of people straying or wandering? Maybe you think of people who've apostatized, who've quit Jesus, who no longer follow him, and who loudly let you know about it. Or maybe you think of people who are no longer vital members of the body. They no longer attend the, the weekly gatherings. They seem to cut off all communication with the church. They grow distant and go silent. Now, those are certainly instances of people wandering from the truth. 
But there's another snapshot of straying that James has been showing us throughout this letter. It's people who continue to call themselves Christians and who commit to attending all the services of the church, of people who claim they're very pious, but whose actions prove otherwise. James shows us in this letter that many people are straying even as they sit in church services and show favoritism towards the rich and well-off, towards the more respectable people in society. People are straying even as they sing praises to the Lord on Sundays, but have mouths full of curses and filth the other six days of the week. People are straying even as they passionately articulate justification by faith alone and proudly affirm because of justification by faith alone, I have peace with God. And yet they are involved in all kinds of conflict with their spouses and other church members. James means to show us something of the subtlety of straying. Don't just look at the person who's left the church or who's left the Lord as examples of people who wander. Look to yourself. Are you wandering from the truth of the gospel? Are you wandering from the embodiment of truth, the Lord Jesus Christ himself? You might say, I know the truth. But do you show you know the truth? What's your life look like? It's not just about doctrine, it's about practice. James' whole letter then has been an example of what he says in verse 20. It's aimed at bringing back sinners from their wandering so that their souls might be saved from death. And it's what he calls all of us to do, to pursue one another with the aim of preserving one another's faith, with the aim of protecting each other from straying into sin and staying there. We, amazingly, are God's agents to bring back sinners that their souls might be saved. What a wonderful calling and assignment. That's what the Lord has called us to as brothers and sisters in the local church. Saints, that means we must be willing to dig into each other's lives. We we must be willing to get to know each other's sins and temptations and struggles. We must fight against the worldly ideas of individualism. We must fight against worldly ideas of preserving harmony of keeping peace by just letting everybody do their own thing. Just live and let live. No, we want each other to live eternally. So we cannot let each other just live falsely now. We cannot let each other live hypocritically now. We cannot let each other live in sin now. We must rather confront one another when when we are in sin. We must confront one another when we're drifting, when we sense that we're drifting, We must help each other towards holiness as we seek to help each other towards heaven. It means we must actually do what we pledge to do in our church covenant, to walk together in brotherly love as becomes, as is fitting for the members of a Christian church, to exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish 
and entreat one another as occasion may require. When we see sin, we point it out. But more, we point each other to the Savior, Jesus Christ, who died that we might no longer be under the penalty or the power of sin. We bring back sinners from wandering and save each other's souls from death and cover a multitude of sins by bringing each other back to Jesus, who died to atone our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus came to save sinners like us who were wandering away from God. All we, like sheep, had gone astray. We had turned every one of us to our own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Christ, then, there's no more iniquity for us, then. There's only forgiveness and salvation and freedom from sin. James shows us that a true church is one that doesn't simply confess that. A true church is one who cares enough about the Lord and each other to live like it's true. May the Lord help us to be that kind of church who exemplify a living faith in word and in deed through trials and triumphs, through persistently praying and purposely pursuing one another to God's glory and the good of our body. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that convicts and equips, that challenges and chastises, that comforts us, that leads us to the cross. Lord, we pray that as, as a result of trusting in your word, Lord, we might come to know Jesus, some for the first time, and some come to know him more deeply, more intimately. Lord, we pray that you would help us to pray more persistently. Lord, we pray that you would help us to pursue one another more faithfully. And Lord, we pray that you would get glory as the God to whom we always look, the God to whom we are always conforming, the God to whom we submit our lives. Lord, we need you, and we trust you, and we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.